The business of America is business. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, who could deny the value of free enterprise? Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Would free enterprise be possible without freedom of speech, freedom of thought, assembly, and association? Aren't free markets the essence of freedom? Keep it in the black. Show a profit, keep it in the black, keep it in the black. Never mind your soul, never mind the landscape, never mind the other guy, keep it in the black. Free enterprise is a minor blessing compared with the true political freedoms. Free markets in ideas, free markets in goods and services. Two sides of the same coin. If you nail together two things that have never been nailed together before, some schmuck will buy it from you, huh? Freedom and free enterprise. Uh, and it's free, just a dollar. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're in the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford University. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're philosophizing about freedom and free market. Well, Ken, two things that go hand in hand, freedom and free markets. Free markets wouldn't be possible without individual freedom. And to regulate the market is to shackle liberty. Oh, but John, isn't it sometimes necessary to regulate the markets in the name of freedom? Well, how could that be? When you restrict markets, you restrict choice. And to restrict choice is to restrict freedom. But, but just think about health insurance. If health insurance was distributed by the free market alone, then lots of people, old people, people with pre-existing conditions, people with bad habits, probably couldn't afford health insurance at all. What kind of freedom is it when you have to live in constant fear that the next illness will lead to financial ruin, for example? Well, it sounds like you approve of the government stepping in and forcing insurance companies against their will to provide health insurance to certain people. But what's that got to do with freedom? When you tell insurers who to insure, you're restricting their freedom. Yeah, but you're enhancing the freedom of other of people who otherwise couldn't get health insurance. You, you, you're freeing them from constant worry. You're freeing them to change jobs without fear of losing their health care. I think you're stretching the word freedom out of shape there. You're really thinking about fairness, not freedom. Regulating markets may or may not make life more fair, but regulation always makes people, the regulated people, less free. So you don't think fairness is a good thing? Well, yeah, it's, it's okay. Fairness is definitely a good thing. I'd go that far. So is equality. But fairness, equality, and freedom sometimes conflict. If I have to choose, I, I'd pick freedom over fairness and equality any day. Well, well you know, I, I don't have the same fetish for freedom that you do, I, I guess. But but the, that point aside, I still think your concept of freedom is way too narrow. But I haven't even told you what I mean by freedom. It's really very simple. Freedom is the absence of compulsion or coercion. Suppose I were to get up now and leave the studio in response to your completely wacko liberal <laughs> wussiness. <laughs> What would it mean to say that I acted freely in doing so? 
It would just mean that I made an unforced choice to do so. Nobody held a gun to my head. Nobody coerced me into doing it. That's what freedom is. I, that's, I agree. That's one notion of freedom. Well, in the same sense, markets are free when they're governed by the unforced choices of the producers who have something to sell and the consumers who want to buy it. But you're just focused on negative freedom. There's also such a thing as positive freedom. Positive freedom involves more than the absence of external constraint or coercion. It requires autonomy, the positive power to shape your own life in ways of your own choosing. Well, that's a fine enough distinction. I think it was Isaiah Berlin who first made it, that's, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, and the distinction has roots, deep roots, in the works of thinkers like Kant, Rousseau, Marx, Hegel. Rousseau, Marx, Hegel. <laughs> you can see where that came from. I trust you know that what Berlin thought about governments that set out to enhance positive freedom, that those governments quickly turn into oppressive, overbearing busybodies in the name of promoting autonomy. They strive to protect us from bad choices and base impulses. They claim to know better than we do how to run our lives. Forget positive freedom, Ken. The government should just leave us alone. Oh, John, come on. But uh, look, suppose I have no money, no education, no health insurance. What good does it do me to be left alone? So you want a government that will take care of you, cradle to grave, is that it? No, no, I want to be free and I want to be autonomous so that I can take care of myself. But that means more than being left alone, left on my own. I need access to good schools, safe streets, and basic goods like food, shelter, and adequate health care if I'm going to be free and autonomous. Yeah, but the market can provide all of those things. Oh, come on. John, do you really think that if we let the free market alone determine, for example, who gets educated, that rich and poor would have equal access to education? Well, it's an open empirical question because it's never been tried. We don't have a free market in education, so how should we know? We've put trust in our politicians and bureaucrats. How's that working out for you? Well, well, look, I'll grant you this much. There's a lot to think about here. And to help us start, we sent a roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to talk with someone who positively adores, just like you, the free market, John. She files this report. 1989 was a year of protest in Eastern Europe. Demonstrators in Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, and East Germany took to the streets and toppled communist governments. The East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Protests rippled across Eastern Europe, and in Czechoslovakia, the nonviolent Velvet Revolution replaced communism with a parliamentary republic. I was six when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe. What Delibor Rohak remembers most about the years under communism in Czechoslovakia was the startling lack of freedom. You, know, you couldn't travel without approval of the party. You couldn't purchase certain goods without having access to special shops that were reserved for party members, couldn't do a number of things that, that were sort of restricted to, to people who were part of the ruling class. Today, Rohak is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C., and he's a big believer that free markets bring freedom. What markets do by making people better off is that they expand the choices that people can make. He says you can't ace a science test or learn to play the violin if your chief concern is getting enough to eat. You know, with increased division of labor and robust markets for food, 
people can do other things than just scramble for food every day. And the deeper the division of labor gets, the more sophisticated markets get, the more innovations we see and, and, and just more efficient the markets are, plethora of choices that people have expands and, and you could make a reasonable argument that that's what makes people freer. Rohak sees similarities between his native country's transition to democracy and the Arab Spring, which began in late 2010 after a desperate Tunisian street vendor had been shaken down for bribes by police. Here's a clip from Al Jazeera. Frustrated and ashamed by the public humiliation he endured at the hands of police, Mohammed set himself on fire outside the local municipality building. His closest friends, anguished by Mohammed's actions, took to the streets and began a popular uprising that lasted for weeks before it toppled the 23-year-old rule of President Zain Abidin bin Ali. Rohak says the Arab Spring was as much about economic opportunity and free enterprise as it was about creating constitutional and accountable governments. If you want to make people happy, you have to just give them space to succeed in life by opening up economic opportunities to them. He points to Egypt, where the military has ousted a democratically elected president, and Morocco, where dozens of protesters have set themselves on fire. To me, that's a worrying sign that the events of the Arab Spring have not delivered yet on the promise of sort of expanding the freedom uh, of individuals to earn their living, pursue free enterprise, innovate, and, and make themselves better off through productive efforts. And while what's happening in the Middle East reminds Rohak of what happened a quarter century ago in Eastern Europe, he says one key difference is that in the former Czechoslovakia, it was clear what the country was moving away from and what it was transitioning toward. Rohak's not sure countries like Egypt have yet developed a shared vision of what the future holds. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. Thanks, Caitlin. Rather interesting reinterpretation of Arab Spring from uh, <laughs> your friend Rohat. Uh, we'll have to think about that. I'm John Perry. With me is my colleague from Stanford University, Ken Taylor. And today we're talking about freedom and free markets. We're joined now by Shannon Stemson. She's a professor of political science from UC Berkeley. She's co-author of After Adam Smith, a Century of Transformation in Politics and Political Economy. Shannon, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you very much. Shannon, you're an expert on, on what is called <laughs> <laughs> well, political economy. Also, you, you, you laugh easily. That's really good. Uh, now, I understand what politics is, and I understand what economics is, although I understand very little of economics. But what is political economy? Is that economics debased by politics, and, and why do you find it so fascinating? Um, well, I think when I speak of political economy in my own work, because I am largely an historian of thought, um, and I study the 18th and 19th centuries, so that's the transformation question, um, political economy is really thought about as an imaginative construct or a systematic understanding of production, distribution, and state relationship to it, that is, government relationship to it, law, uh, custom, um, again, and regulation. So if we think of contempor very contemporary political economy, which many of my fellow political scientists do, that's not so much what I think about in terms of political economy. I think of it, uh, you're both philosophers, as the transformation of 
polos and oikos, uh, polos and oikos of the of the basis of civil life and the basis of maintaining civil life, which is the economy, put together in a systematic perspective. Okay, so in our in our opening segment, now I mean the truth is that Ken and I are both kind of wussy liberals, but I'm adopting yeah. the persona for for this program uh, uh, of being the free marketeer. Because sure. somebody has to. And I did read Adam Smith all the way through the Pin Factory stuff. Uh, so <laughs> That's just book so, one. So, but okay. yeah, that's just, well, come on. What do you want? <laughs> I argued that the two go hand in hand. Free markets, individual freedom. And there's a lot of really intelligent people who believe that. Ken argued that that's not necessarily true. Now, which side do you come down on? Well, I think that the very concept of a market itself, um, especially at the time that Smith is writing, uh, presupposes that there is greater freedom. That is, there is greater freedom from arbitrary regulation so that more people are participating in the market. So on that note alone, freedom is expanding. I don't think we're setting sort of freedom stipulated against free markets. Uh, I don't think we'll get very far with that, but I think that that uh, markets themselves, unless we're talking about command economies, um, uh, engage uh, freedom of choice. But they never engage it purely. As Smith said, it's as likely that we will have a pure free market as Oceana will be uh, instated. Shannon, Shannon, do you think that freedom, free markets, you said free markets engage freedom of choice. That seems to me right as far as it goes. But do free markets necessarily engage free, rational, informed, autonomous, non-manipulated choice? I mean, I mean, there's no, a lot. I heard your yeah, I heard your 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 comments in the beginning, and I think that's right. I think what's the main thing to say about political economy, and you, I know that you're interested in, in in different types of sort of principle-based freedom arguments, or or the ways in which sort of uh, principles uh, determine the limits of market regulation. But by and large, if you look to the origins of political economy, it is a very consequentialist or utilitarian uh, view that. That is, liberty is an outcome. It's not something you necessarily begin with. That uh, arbitrary power is removed. That means that there's greater equality of participation. And Smith believed that liberty would follow. Um, how much liberty? That's always a question, all the way to the great 19th century theorist of liberty, Mill. Okay, we're going to... Uh, we're going to have to explore that question in some greater detail. <laughs> That's a deep and hard question. Uh, you're... you're uh, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're talking about freedom and free markets. Our guest is... Uh, Shannon Stimson from UC Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. In our next segment, we'll probe the very idea of the free market. Can markets ever really be totally free? All markets? Is talk of the free market just kind of an ideological construct, a mathematical abstraction, fighting words? Is it really true that the freer the market, the freer we, we all will be? Or is it possible for free markets to undermine freedom? Freedom of markets or freedom from markets? When Philosophy Talk continues. Does living with free markets 
leave you lost in the supermarket? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're questioning today the basis of freedom and free markets. What exactly is a free market, and what does it really have to do with individual liberty? Do the two go hand in glove, or can the operation of the market sometimes undermine our liberty and our autonomy? Our guest is Shannon Simpson, co-author of After Adam Smith, A Century of Transformation in Politics and Political Economy. So, Shannon, I want to take us back to where we were just before the break okay. here. I want to explore more fully the relationship between individual liberty and free markets. But let's start by focusing on the market side of this. Tell me, what exactly okay. does it mean to say that a market is, quote, free? What exactly does that uh, that's mean? A, yeah, that's a great question. I think no market is entirely free if you mean uh, entirely unrestricted. Of course, there are laws and markets take place between or within the context of constitutional order or governmental order. Right. There couldn't be a market. Health. There yeah. couldn't be a market exactly. in the state of nature with no government exactly. at all. Right. But keep going. Exactly. Exactly. It's that it's that failure, in fact, of the market in the state of nature that that Hobbes pulls us out of the state of nature. But we regulate health. We regulate sanitary conditions of workers. We regulate wages and hours. We regulate professional credentials. We even regulate entry into the market. You cannot be, you cannot sell your medical services as a doctor without the credential. Are those restrictions of freedom or are those restrictions things that make the market work more freely? That is, they provide, as you said earlier, knowledge, information for reason, judgment. Um, I think that, uh, again, uh, uh, Friedman certainly argued for utterly unrestricted markets, no post office, no anything. Uh, but he also stepped back from that because it's very hard to imagine how it would even operate. It's a very much an abstract oh, ideal. Okay. So, so suppose we grant you uh, reasonably that there has to be some regulation to have markets right. work at all, some enforcement right. of contracts, some you know, maybe some exactly. kind of so forth and so on. Now, some some people, you know, uh, we've got this Nobel Prize winner here at Stanford, uh, uh, Ken Arrow, and sometimes when I we're... I know him very well. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when we're playing Frisbee or doing shots, uh, I'm kidding. Uh, he explains to me that in some areas, like medicine, markets really can't be as free as they are in other areas because of the nature of what's being bought and sold. C right. Can you explain that and tell me if you think that's right? Well, I think that's your colleague, De Deborah Satz. I mean, the, the idea is, is everything for sale or organs for sale? I think, again, just if I step back one second, part, part of what was liberating about the development of political economy as a freedom from arbitrary regulation in the 18th century was that it also removed moral regulation. It talked about natural prices, not prices established somehow socially or, polit or more directly politically. However, it doesn't mean that in the market we necessarily see all things as equivalent commodities. Um, you know, someone who's very poor might want to sell their heart in order to give their family uh, additional, you know, financial support. But we don't accept it as a, commo a tradable commodity in the market. And that's what Arrow is talking about. I want you to back up, though. I still, okay, so I get that in some sense of free, the idea of an absolutely free market would be, uh, is not possible. An abstract idea. It's right. an abstract idea that's not really possible. Okay, so markets have to be regulated. Now, then you use the phrase, Something about arbitrary regulation. That sounds like right. there are some kind of permissible regulations, 
Well, let's see if this is right. There are certain kind of regulations that are conditions of the very possibility of there being uh, free exchange between free peoples or something like that. Yes, there are those. There, there are those. But then anything beyond that is arbitrary or what? Right. Well, again, you look to theorists. I mentioned Mill earlier. Of course, Mill has a harm principle. He also argued, though, that if you could show that regulation of a market was effective, that is, it could serve the purposes that government intends, um, he was all for it. Uh, the regulation of poisons, for example, the sale of poisons. Um, in, other, in other cases, if you cannot show the regulation to be effective, again, we're, we're thinking about a utilitarian here, then the consequences don't bear out the argument for regulation and he would be in favor of freer markets um, or of, of, of greater unregulated unre- activity. But this is someone um, who you know, is considered a great theorist of liberty of opinion, he's much more restrictive, actually, when he talks about liberty of the market. So, again, so again, I'm just trying to get my head around the very idea of a free market, and I think I've got a thought. Yeah. And just tell me if I'm on the right track or not. So there's some yeah. kind of minimal regulation that is absolutely essential to making markets possible. The, a market that is minimally regulated, n- not me- regulated beyond necessity, that's what a free market is. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is that what is that dividing line between the minimally necessary regulations and those that are arbitrary or you're burdensome? Ex- you're exactly right. To introduce something controversial in the United States, we don't. We are we, uh, after Glass-Steagall. We are not regulating banks to the extent or banking activity to the extent that we did in the past. In Canada, they re- reg- regulate it quite severely. Are they less free in Canada than we are in America? Well, that's a subject of political debate. Well, when I was a kid uh, in in Nebraska. Uh, I, I, my understanding from my father, I mean, this is back in the 40s and 50s, was that that banks were not allowed to even be interstate. Uh, You know, banks were very heavily regulated. I must say, I didn't feel less free then than I do now when banks are international and uh, uh, above the law. So so what was the motivation for all those changes? I think it, it, in part, the, uh, the motivation, again, market-driven expansion of banking, um, also the, uh, the desire uh, to uh, have ever larger banks, uh, not, your, not your local bank, but your local bank as a, as a branch of, I, I'll, I don't have to mention any but, any, but any large bank with a stagecoach as its uh, logo. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and, um, uh, and the idea being um, uh, that there would be um, cheaper banking, uh, less uh, less interest being charged, etc. So the idea that that expansion or growth means efficiency, and that's being driven by a market, uh, a model of the market, um, and it was being driven against the idea that hey, it's good to know your banker face to face to go in and get a loan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, um, so, so that is so, right. so. So another area. That's not quite the same as regulation is when there's state competition, as with education or the post office. Now, the existence of the post office didn't prevent UPS or the whatever it is and FedEx. So it didn't rule out free enterprise, right. but it clearly uh, mixes with the market. And the same with education where you have public schools. What principles do we use to decide or should we use to decide whether the state should be involved in offering a service or should just leave it to free enterprise? 
I, 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 Just in a, a word question. or two, give us your yeah. accumulated yeah, wisdom right. on this topic, would you? <laughs> no, right. I think it's a great question, and it is subject, as are many questions in political economy, to political decision making. I think that people should decide. But I mean, but the, let's put. The, I want to put some desiderata on the board. Yeah. Because this goes back sure. to something else we talked to, uh, uh, about at the opening. Look, you, you've talked a lot just now. You've you've used the word efficiency a couple times. The market is ruthlessly efficient in allocating and uh, distributing uh, goods to, to people. Uh, ruthlessly efficient. But here's something else it's not. It's not equitable, and it's not Absolutely. always fair. Well, there's some sense Absolutely. of fair, right? So, look, suppose I say I want to live in a fair, equitable, efficient society. Right. Then, 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 what do I do? Do I say, oh, let the free market decide everything? Or do no, I, I adjust not. the market? I mean, how do I go about adjudicating between these competing desiderata of fairness, equity, and, uh, and, 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 and freedom. Right. Again, I think people, uh, ultimately, if we, uh, if we wish to trust political economy to democratic decision-making, which I think there's a great desire to do that, um, w- we do it by uh, fighting it out, unfortunately, or fortunately, at, at the polls. That is, you've, you've, you've stated it v- very well. Um, Markets can be ruthlessly efficient, and they can be incredibly inequitable. The idea that you know that Adam Smith believed that an unintended consequence of the division of labor and an unintended consequence of pursuing self-interest would be a larger bucket of wealth, which would, as it were, trickle down to everyone, um, is <laughs> is not a scientific principle, nor is it necessarily proven in every case. The, the uh, political economy is not a science. Well, so see, this is if a, it's not a science, how do we adjust it? How this, do we regulate it? This we is regulate some, it through politics. Shannon, this is something that people who are, I uh, will call them worshippers of the market, you yeah. know, they bow down in honor of the market as the single just way of distributing things. And any interference yeah. with the market is interference with fundamental liberty and all that sort of stuff. They right. seem to believe, and I wonder if there's empirical support for this, that the market its efficiency is the greatest wealth enhancer. It is the greatest wealth distributor possible. You take these command economies that are mostly all gone, and they they do a terrible job of this. But you let the market operate, and everybody's going to be uh, as best off as they could possibly be. What do you think? Well, about we that? can throw out command economies and just ask how are you how are you feeling in two thousand nine? How is that working? You know, for for people, I think uh, I don't think that that our most recent crisis was caused by over restriction. I think it was caused by just the opposite. Yeah, but they would argue uh, to or, you. Or uh, if it could be simplistically explained as being caused by, by any one thing. But they so, would argue to you in comparison to what, right? So, you, right. So, so the worker always has to choose. The worker says, here's a justification. Look, look at the worker. Am I better off <laughs> cooperating with the capitalist or am I better off in some other system or if I'm better off working on my own? The, question's always going to, the answer's always going to be, the defender of the free market says, you're going to be better off Working with a capitalist, working for wages in the capitalist system, because if you substitute a command economy, you're going to be worse off. If you just work on, unaided, uh, you know, on your own, you're going to be worse off. So it's always going to give you the optimal. It may not give you a perfect outcome, but compared to anything else, it's always going to give you an optimal outcome. Is there any well, reason to disbelieve a- that? Yeah, I would just say that's an abstract argument that lacks strong uh, <laughs> empirical evidence. BS, think, in other uh, words. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, I mean, again, um, uh, I don't want to start saying on the one side, you know, on the one side this, on on the other side that. Uh, the operation of the market 
um, can be onerously overregulated. No one doubts that. The market can be dramatically underregulated. No one doubts that. How do we measure it? We measure it by outcomes. Uh, do we necessarily have a? You both work on Hume. I know you do. Do we have a real close causal fit uh, between this cause and effect? Not really. So I think uh, uh, we constantly adjust our our uh, economic theories. You know, I mean, I have a cartoon on the door of my office. It says, uh, "Once I was a Keynesian, then I was a supply sider, then I was a monetarist. Now I'm a bum." Yeah, I think now, that <laughs> now see, I happen to believe the following. I don't know if on the basis of what, but I do. Uh, it's not like I have a great econ- economics education. I took some economics courses in undergraduate, but you know, but I, I happen to believe the following: that the greatest uh, invention of the twentieth century was uh, the mixed economy because uh-huh. it saved capitalism from collapse. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that we've kind of lost sight, the Republican Party at least, has lost sight of the, of the importance of the mixed economy. Because mm-hmm. when we had an unmixed economy, capitalism basically ruined itself. It drove itself into the ground. What do you think mm-hmm. about that thought? Are you asking me? No. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm asking you. Oh, you're asking me, okay. Yeah. Well, I think, right, I, uh, I think the following. You asked me at the very outset, how, what do I understand as political economy? And you asked me how I got interested in it. And I actually uh, got interested in it because of the problem introduced at its very outset, which is it's based on uh, an argument of unintended consequences. That is, if we all follow our own self-interest and are to as large extent possible possible, unregulated, as if by an invisible hand, a trope Smith only uses three times, but it's it's <laughs> a term that, that a kind of apersus that covers a huge a, a attempt at explanation, um, things will come out better for everyone. And you know, even in his work, sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I mean, it's uh, uh, the division of labor creates uh, uh, both um, uh, greater productivity uh, on the part of each individual pin maker, you said you read the the pin maker, and it also um, uh, creates sort of innovative ways of, of producing. Uh, he also said it makes pin makers as stupid as men can possibly right. become <laughs> yes. because they're doing it, you know, yeah, sixteen well. hours a day, right? He says the uh, the nobles sold their birthright stupidly for baubles, and wasn't it great that they did because they had to sell their land then, and land was more widely distributed and. Uh, and the economy had more participants. People became more equal, and they became more free. So, so unintended consequences is a is an odd sort of explanation. As philosophers, I don't know how you think about it. I think it's a kind of post hoc. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. And oh, that's my, not my, a theory. My, I'm, my yeah. life is totally based on unintended consequences <laughs> of my <laughs> yeah. my parents and uh, other people. Right. Uh, so we've got right. email. Uh, we, we may run out of time in this segment to talk about it. This is from Barbara. She says, to what extent do you believe our current free markets have been subverted by special interest influences on world economies with specific focus on the proliferation of lobbyists in the U.S. government? i.e. giant agribusiness. Does this have any historical precedence in the 17th to 19th century? That is to say, were these great thinkers of those earlier times uh, uh, aware of the fact that uh, uh, politicians are bought and sold by business? Oh, yes, they were. For, most certainly they were. Uh, Smith was hugely troubled by the East India Corporation. 
Um, he was troubled because it was, uh, as corporations are, a kind of odd duck in the market system. They are neither wholly public nor wholly private. They are authorized by government and given their powers and personhood by by government. At the same time, they pursue uh, uh, private enrichment. And in India, the East India Company was operating as a government and uh, not just as a company. And he thought that was extremely problematic. And it was the basis of his strong argument that that less time might be spent talking about busting worker combinations and more time could be spent about busting monopolies. He sounds, simply like, because, he sounds yeah. more like Theodore Roosevelt than Scalia. Yeah. Well, um, I don't. We won't have time, unfortunately, to talk about Citizens United. But that's uh, that is that is, I think, the heart of the problem of freedom and the free market. Uh, corporations in the middle of it, requesting to exercise political rights, and at the same time, uh, being um, something that is uh, is a public institution separate uh, from the stockholders who invest in it. So if you uh, if you want to give managers of corporations well, we'll, an extra We'll vote, have a little time for that in the next segment, I hope. Yeah. We're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about freedom and free markets with Shannon Stemson from UC Berkeley. With the fall of communism, free market capitalism seems like the only game in town. Can we tweak and improve capitalism so that it does a better job distributing good things fairly and equitably? Or would that just kind of impel us all the way back to the horrors of communism? Capitalism with a human face? When Philosophy Talk continues. How about perfume? We got perfume. How about an engagement ring? Some for the little lady, some for the little lady, some for the little lady. Step up right now. It's capitalism and the free market in action. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Shannon Stimson from UC Berkeley, and we're looking into the relationship between freedom and free markets. Shannon, there seems to be agreement, at least among uh, most of us, that communism was pretty much a failure. But it had noble and deeply humanistic aspirations. Capitalism, on the other hand, seems to be a great success if you ignore the slight problems about global warming and the end of life on Earth. <laughs> but uh, people sometimes say it lacks a heart. Is it possible to have a system that somehow combines the lofty aspirations of communism with the ruthless efficiency of capitalism? I will set communism to, to one side and, and think uh, a little about or say so, a little about the question of capitalism with a heart. I think, again, it goes back to the very origins of, of thinking systematically about the economy. Someone like Smith did not think that beneficence or pity even was an effective source of distribution or of uh, improving ordinary workers, let's put it that way. Instead, he drew on something that he called sympathy. But again, um, the sympathy that he saw was, how would I feel were I in your shoes? In other words, I cannot know ever what you feel or what you think, but how would I feel and would I resent it? Would I see it as unjust if I were in your shoes? And he used that to develop in his work, The Moral Sentiments, a very sort of thick psychology that he thought accompanied the market. And in a way, the market 
uh, is a tool, but only a tool so long as we're willing to fool ourselves. And that is that as we gain wealth, people will admire us. Uh, we pursue it not simply for our self-interest, but for, for the admiration of others. We wear a Rolex watch. If we do, not because it keeps time any better than my Timex, but because when people see it, they think I'm special. This is a an argument that he had with Rousseau, again, about how we live in the presence of others. So is it have a heart? It does have a heart, but but in a way, I think uh, the idea is that we fool ourselves. We work ourselves to death right. so that others will admire but us. But Shannon, Shannon, I, I, I get your point, and I think Smith was alive to a real problem with yeah. communism, I mean uh, capitalism, but actually I think he had an inadequate understanding of the corrosive effect on, on, of capitalism on human sentiment. Mark said I something, couldn't agree with you more. Mark yeah. said something I think is very profound. He did not say it as a criticism, but just as a factual observation about what the, the relentless logic of capitalism, that it sunders every connection between human and human except calculations of naked self-interest. That's the logic right. of capitalism. So it undermines right. family, country. It undermines every... It's this corrosive thing. Now, he thought that was possibly progressive, because some of those old formations were forms of oppression, but he thought that capitalism was just a destructive tool in that way, in its ruthless efficiency. And I don't yeah. think I don't think Smith saw clearly enough the corrosive power I, of capitalism. I couldn't agree with you more. Writing when he did in the la in the uh, 1776, so writing in the last quarter of the. Uh, 18th century, I think he could possibly have imagined what Marx saw by the 1840s or even the 1830s. Um, and, and, and indeed, the industrial capitalism um, uh, was, you know, far beyond his conception of, of market life. So in the case of Marx, uh, he actually turned back to Smith, admired him far more than he did the Mills or others, because he focused uh, his political economy on the material basis of production. Um, but at the same time, it, it's uh, uh, extremely uh, short-sighted, let's say, or wasn't sufficiently far-sighted to engage, Professor Taylor, exactly what you said earlier, how degrading uh, production could become. I mean, he recognized it with pinheadism, but right. he could not imagine uh, the extension uh, of that uh, to uh, industrial uh, production. So, a absolutely right. We've got uh, a call. It doesn't make Marx's economics work. But well, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a call from Paul in San Mateo. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Paul. Yeah, hey, thanks. Um, I was just sort of curious about why do you think Americans seem to embrace the free market so much more than other people. Like it seems like there's a bunch of Germans and Swedes out there that have way less freedom than <laughs> we do, but they're fine with it. And like I just don't understand why the, the Americans, why Americans specifically like free market capitalism so much more than others. Great question, Paul. Well, what do you what do you think, Shannon? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I, you know, it is a great question, and there have, there have, I can tell you how answers have been approached uh, to it, and one is that sort of uh, ignoring the fact that there was a huge indigenous population in America. America was thought to be this blank slate on <laughs> which uh, entrepreneurial energy could be exercised, uh, ever moving ever westward, and that it, it spurred a mode of living which was very disengaged, ultimately very disengaged from locale. Uh, and very oriented toward um, possession, toward production of, of 
consumer goods. Also, of course, it's hard to imagine any country that has a more ruthless commercial establishment than the United States, which is selling 24 seven. But but, yeah, yeah. but I I see that I understand the historical roots of that. But if you think about uh, modern solutions to modern problems, I mean, you know, it it was such a struggle for us to achieve the modest reform in the distribution of health insurance that we have achieved, and it's so precarious. Industrialized democracy around the world glommed onto this a long time ago, and uh, and we look at them like, oh my God, we don't want to become Europe. I mean, what what? But what explains? I mean, is it just the historical roots? I mean, why are Europeans so much more into? what I believe is a great invention of the 20th century, the mixed economy, and we're so resistant to the mixed well, economy. Well, let me, let me just put my two cents in. I mean, yeah. this this uh, old history is, is no doubt important, but if you look at uh, the Franklin Roosevelt years and look at how close right. we came to getting reasonable health insurance back when Truman was president, it's really the history between uh, the 50s and uh, Obama that seems so peculiar, where where things that Eisenhower and Nixon were in favor of now seem to be, uh, uh, from certain perspectives, uh, virtual socialism. Right. Uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting point. Um, I think, you know, I, one can in, in part say that it's true that the term social de- democracy in America is very much an, a, a, an epithet, whereas it's a, it's a common concern among European nations to, to engage a social democracy, which in, in, again attempts to join the two things that you've been talking about, equity or equality and, and freedom um, in the distribution of, of necessities at the at the very bottom. Um, and in this country, uh, there is uh, much less uh, of a willingness even to consider it. I, I couldn't begin to answer that question other than um, it, a Great Depression put us in that mindset. Uh, we came very close to uh, reliving that recently. Um, and it didn't seem mm-hmm. uh, in Congress to spark the same reaction. And I'm... I'm uh, uh, as an academic or an intellectual, I'm at a loss to explain that. Yeah, so here's the thought. Here's a non, since I'm not a scholar of these things, I can just have uninformed, of the deeply Good. held opinions. <laughs> it's, it's because we're in the grips of the oligarchic class. And the oligarchic mm-hmm. class is not really interested in free markets. They're interested in markets that they control. I mean, they're interested in, in markets that have restricted entry. They're interested in a government that does, their, that does its bidding. And moreover, politics in this country is not so much bottom-up but top-down because we, it's hard to register to vote. It's hard to get your voice heard. We have, we have stupid modes of representation that gives Wyoming all this power over the citizens of California because it... So we have this. We have this system that that that. Well, you know. In, in, in other words, uh, to paraphrase Ken, uh, free markets combined with democracy might be a great idea, but but we've got the free markets without the democracy. Basically, right. Well, um, I I guess I would I. I, without disagreeing with that, I'd look at it slightly differently. And, I was hoping you um, would. I was trying to be <laughs> as cynical as I possibly that, could be. Well, no, no, I, I, I share that, but, uh, but in trying to sort of anal- to offer some kind of analysis of it, um, I think that uh, what you're describing is a wealth pyramid in in America that's rising ever more sharply, and in part, um, you have to imagine. Um, uh, Adam Smith was thinking about certainly he was thinking about international trade to. Uh, 
uh, more widely um, than those who had previously written. Um, but he wasn't yet thinking about um, if it can be made more cheaply in France, why don't we make it there? And uh, th this idea of comparative advantage, it's, people try to find it in his work, but it's really not until Ricardo that you really see it. In an utterly globalized market, we see nothing but the argument from comparative advantage, which is, why don't we make it in X? And that's, that's very good for driving prices down, but it's very poor for employing labor. You know, I, as, so, a, as a yeah. son of the Midwest, I, <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how deeply... Uh, that that uh, argument from uh, comparative advantage uh, 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 bothers me because basically yeah. what the global economy did is level my hometown and the surrounding right. towns and made people sure. obsolete. I mean, obsolete machines you throw aside. What do you do with obsolete people? Yeah, exactly. Some of them you can employ as philosophy professors, but <laughs> but that doesn't work for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, see that's the problem. That's the uh, that's what I think. So the, I don't I don't endorse Marxism. But that's the part of capitalism that we have not comes adequately to grips with the ruthlessness of it. The ruthlessness is right. is crucial to the efficiency of it. But the ruthlessness of it does not make for polity, for shared life, for you know everybody buying in and having an equal stake. It just doesn't. I agree with you, and, and you've actually touched on a very important point that I emphasize with my students, and that is in the neoclassical model, um, efficiency, uh, equilibrium and efficiency are, are the kind of ruling paradigm, but but it, efficiency is not just, shouldn't be just for efficiency's sake. Again, if, if, you, if you are looking at it from a, to, uh, from a utilitarian perspective, there are more outcomes that are valued than efficiency. Um, and, and therefore, you can make the market run well, you can't make it run, but you can you can attempt to pursue maximal efficiency. But there will be trade offs and and human human trade offs. There can be product quality trade offs. There can be all sorts of trade offs. And so constantly this this conjunction we're looking at freedom and free markets, which is certainly not the same thing as efficiency and free markets, but but has to be balanced. And uh, and an astute public has to be willing to vote its its thoughts about this. Well, just to, just to put in a, a, a point of view from the other side, in the long run, uh, American ruthlessness will have done a lot for world equality, for, for the status of women in China, and maybe even eventually in Bangladesh. So uh, if we're going to be teary-eyed liberal one-worlders, shouldn't we really appreciate that? Yeah. Well, I do think that that is an interesting point. Those who have who have argued that uh, Smith, Adam Smith, for example, really had no uh, commitments to domestic politics, but was interested in just in in the continuous growth and expansion of wealth, which would ultimately mean that the market was you know limited only by the amount of land that's out there. Um, then did not have a, a strong sort of patriotic or whatever commitment. Um, and that may well be uh, uh, the case, that that markets have had a powerful and positive effect. No, you know, there's no, I think there's no question about that. But that can't take our gaze away from its, its limitations mm -hmm. as well. Again, it's not a science. It's not, it's not, you know, beef in, burgers out. It's, it's, it's got to be uh, constantly adjusted. Be, uh, well, because, that's, yeah. Susanna, I'm going to have to uh, thank you for joining us. It's been a great yeah. conversation. 
Yeah, thank you. Our guest has been Shannon Stimson. She's a professor of political science from UC Berkeley, co-author of After Adam Smith, A Century of Transformation in Politics and Political Economy. This conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter and find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. Now we're going to turn to Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher, the best we could find on the open market for the fastest word on disruption in the marketplace. Ian Scholes, when I was a kid, disruption got you sent to the principal's office. It was a bad thing, but in economics, it's good, or at least inevitable. First called Disruptive Innovation in a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, it was used to describe innovations like the cell phone disrupting landline phones, for example. In the book, disruption was descriptive. But in the startup world, it quickly became prescriptive, a buzzword. Disruption is about spearheading change, people, not reacting to it. Get it or get out. In an article in Gawker about troubled bookstore Barnes & Noble and how it's struggling, one commenter commented that he liked to go into his local Barnes & Noble, find a book he liked, and then order the Kindle version on his cell phone. Well, that's disruption in action, isn't it? Fueled by backstabbing, self-important, penny-pinching, unpleasant people who believe that books are better if you read them on machines. All this disruption, it seems to me, means we're about due for another burst economic bubble. I just read a fawning tech article about startup Airbnb on a website promoting something called platform thinking. What's revolutionary about Airbnb? The author claims that it used, quote, a platform approach to disrupt an industry without attracting the attention of its traditional competitors. For the first time, anyone with a spare mattress or room could run their own B&B, unquote. Wow. See, back in college, out-of-town friends of mine would often crash in my couch. Today, I could monetize that. Still, to be blunt, I don't see a huge growth industry in the paying strangers money to sleep on their couch in a strange city trend. But what do I know? All I know is Airbnb is doing so well, it wants to hire a full-time baker. From the ad, quote, the baker will create, design, and deliver a high-volume, made-with-love baking and healthy dessert program in our fun and growing office food environment that will set our food program apart as a model for responsible and holistic food service, unquote. The chef's duties will include, quote, help around the office, answer questions about food, do good, and champion the values of homemade food, work with the chef team to develop house-made bulk snacks, pantry, and condiment program, unquote. Well, clearly, Airbnb is spending all its startup money not on monetizing America's mattresses for today's hipster business travelers, but on bulking up the chef team and condiment program. Doomed, I'm thinking. But disruptions come and go, and your Kindle or Nook might make a very nice doorstop. Could be a niche market there. And like B&Bs, the vast doorstop monopoly is ripe for disruption. I gotta go. Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Itran, Carola Kreitmar, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.